Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to have another listener request. Yay! Not long after we started working on this podcast, listener Carissa asked us if we could do an episode about the Karnimata Temple in Deshnok, India which is home to thousands and thousands of rats. Naturally, there's a story there. Uh, And it's a story that's way more than just, hey, rats. Uh, There's a lot of rats. That's a lot of rats. (laughs) But sadly, a lot of the writing in the West is really about the rats. Yeah. Uh, So there was a lot of picking through chaff to find the wheat doing, doing the research for this episode. Uh, I found lots and lots of versions of the same story. Lots and lots of contradictory information. So, in sifting through all that, I think we've gotten kind of to the bottom of it. Yeah, and it has one of your favorite subjects in it. It does. Medieval mystics. Yeah. Uh, We have talked about medieval mystics on the podcast before when we've talked about Marjorie Kemp. But this time, the medieval mystic is from India. And all of this really starts with the Hindu goddess Durga. Uh, She is a goddess with several arms, and exactly how many varies from one depiction to another. Um, Often she is riding on the back of a tiger or a lion, and in each of her many arms she has a different holy weapon. So when you look at depictions of her, she really looks like she could end you, but like with really righteous love. (laughs) She's just going to take you apart. And the reason that she looks so completely dangerous is that she was actually created to defeat the buffalo demon Mahishasura, who was invincible. The gods had been trying to defeat Mahishasura, but they couldn't. So they combined all of their energy together to bring Durga into being. And each of the gods gave Durga their holy weapon to carry into battle against the buffalo demon. And Durga's battle with Mahishasura lasted for nine full days, but on the tenth day, she finally defeated him. And this brings us to Karnimata. She was a 15th century sage and mystic who spent most of her life as an ascetic. Her followers believe that she's an incarnation of Durga. She reportedly lived to be 150 years old, and when she died, she vanished into a flash of fire. Uh, she was born with the name Ridubai in 1387 in the Jodhpur district of Rajasthan, India. This is northwest India, uh, and not that far from the border with Pakistan. She was the seventh daughter born into a fairly affluent Sharan family. The Sharans were known for their poets, bards, and storytellers. And the area where she lived was really mostly scrubland and desert. Most of the people who lived there were nomads who traveled from oasis to oasis, and they grew millet and they herded sheep and goats and cattle. She's described as being really assertive starting in her very early childhood, which was not really acceptable behavior for girls in the culture at the time. She was also known for being a gifted poet, a powerful leader, someone who was extremely intelligent and also extremely ugly. This last part sort of ties into the belief surrounding her. The idea is that Durga chose to be born into an ugly body, having had a beautiful face in a previous life. When Ridu was a child, about the age of six, her aunt was braiding her hair using just one hand. And Ridu told her to use both hands, but the aunt said that she couldn't because her other hand was paralyzed. And Ridu touched the paralyzed hand, and according to legend, her aunt was cured. 
This shows up in most accounts as the first indication that she was a divine being. And that's when she began to be known as Carney. So Mata is an honorary title meaning mother, and Carney means miraculous or divine. So Carney Mata is a miraculous mother. And there's another similar story of Carney laying hands to cure her father of a snake bite, as well as other uh, tales of miracles and divine deeds that she did throughout her life. Carney did not want to get married, but she hadn't yet convinced everyone of her divinity when she reached marriage age. In particular, her father and her uncle doubted her claims of being the reincarnation of Durga, and they forced her into an arranged marriage. And she obeyed. Uh, but she really didn't have any intention of actually leading what would be a quote-unquote normal married life. Uh, the story goes that her marriage was chaste, and when her husband came to their bed on her wedding night, he found, instead of his bride, a lion <laughs> in her place. I didn't realize when I chose this that this was going to be the second of uh, chaste marriages that we would talk about in in our tenure on this podcast. And the second time that divine intervention prevented marriage from being consummated. Yeah. So Carney didn't really want her husband to be saddled with this chaste marriage that he did not ask for. So she arranged for him to be married to her sister as well. Consequently, she may be the only example of a person believed to be the incarnation of a Hindu goddess who was also married. Which is pretty interesting. That I, There's a, a sort of sweetness in it that she's like, well, I want you to be happy. Right. But not with me as your wife. That's not going to work out so the you way can, you think. You but also I'll figure marry, something out. Right. I'll wear something out. You can also marry my sister. And this sort of, this came to back, back to bite them a little bit. And uh, not in the way that you might immediately think. Uh, Carney's bargain with her husband and sister meant that her husband wound up with two wives and two really generous dowries of cattle. Because remember, they were from a pretty affluent family, Carney and her sister. So all of these cows put a huge strain on the local water supply and on the available grazing land. All of that together provided lots of reason for the community to really resent Carney's husband. So the three of them decided to move. The trio traveled north to what's now Deshnoke in what became the Beaconier District. This area was the frequent target of warlords from the Rathor clan who hoped to gain power over the tribes that lived there and establish a kind of feudal government. In 1459, a Rathor man named Rao Bika enlisted Carney's aid in uniting, or perhaps subjugating, depending on which point of view you have and what uh, historical sources you've read, the scattered tribes in the area. So he wanted her help to bring everyone together. The region was just way too big for a small army to be able to hold and secure. So Beacon knew that he was going to need something to give him a sense of authority. That something turned out to be Carney Mata, who had developed a strong religious following in the area by this point. Bika did two things. He consulted Carney Mata often on what his next move should be, and by following her advice, he gained her blessing. So one way to look at this is that Karnimata helped a warlord invade and conquer a bunch of tribes. But the other is that she recognized that the only way to stop the fighting was to if that exact thing happened. And so she chose to support a man that she knew could do it and someone she could influence to make choices that would be better for the people. So, for example, she made sure that once Bika had taken over an area, the people who lived there would still have rights to their ancestral lands. 
And she also helped arrange marriages between clans to strengthen the ties between them. And it took about 20 years for Bika to complete his unification of the territory. And he continued throughout that time to seek Carney's advice and blessing. Bika's descendants continued to rule the area until the Indian Independence Act of 1947. And Carney Mata became the Bikanir royal family's patron deity. And you might have noticed we haven't talked about rats at all yet. No, we have not. But now we're going to. Fine. That starts, well, we're going to in a moment. That does bring us to the temple. Yeah. The first temple was built in Carney's honor in the 15th century. And her husband's descendants were given the honor and responsibility of managing it. As each new ruler came to power, he would give gifts to the temple and make some payments for its upkeep. And this is unique for temples of this type because it's not actually a temple to a deity. It's a temple to a human believed to be the incarnation of a deity. The innermost areas of the temple were built hundreds of years ago, possibly when Karnimata was still alive and under her direction. Bika's grandson built a courtyard around the original structure, and that courtyard uh, was embellished as new leaders came to power until it was replaced entirely in the 19th century. That outer structure was replaced again by the one that exists today in the early 1900s. The current exterior to the temple was built by Maharaja Ganga Singh, who ruled Bikaneer from the late 1880s to 1943. He was a follower of Karnimata, and he built the current temple uh, exterior as a tribute to her. But he also ended the practice of the government giving patronage to the temple in the interest of modernizing the government. The outer temple was built in the late Mughal style of architecture. This is a style of Indian architecture from the 16th to 18th centuries, and it's uh, you would recognize it in a building like the Taj Mahal. It has lots of carved marble on the walls, marble tile floors, lots of arches and columns, and silver and gold accents. So while it's a relatively new structure, it looks pretty old and historic. It has a very classic look to it in the context of other Indian architecture. And the artwork there includes bas-relief carvings of Karnimata and of the Hindu god Ganesh with a mouse at his feet, as well as other statues. The courtyard is also covered in netting up at the sort of ceiling level to keep predators away. And there are holes and tunnels built into the temple for rats to scamper through and run around in, as well as areas for people to live in and to prepare food for the rats, which finally brings us to these 20,000 rats that live in the temple. Yeah. Uh, and the reason that the temple is home to so many rats is actually tied to another of the stories around Carney's life. There are several versions of the story, but they all have some common elements. The first is that a child had died. Some accounts say that it was Carney's own child, although that contradicts the idea that she had a chaste marriage. Other stories say that it was the child of another clansman, or maybe a particularly important clansman, or perhaps it was one of her husband's children by her sister. But regardless, the commonality is that there was a dead child and Carney wanted to return that child to life. But Yama, the god of death, told Karni Mata that the child had already been reincarnated, so she couldn't bring it back. There are also several versions of exactly what happened next. One is that Karni Mata struck a bargain with Yama, that all of her kin would be reincarnated as rats before then being reincarnated back into the clan. 
Another is that Carney, who had a really infamous temper, was so angry at her failure that she sort of sentenced the tribe to be reincarnated as rats. A third version is that Carney had her kin reincarnated as rats to get them out from under the control of Yama. So sort of a reincarnation loophole to get everyone related to her out from this god who uh, had not given her what she wanted. But the bottom line is that the end result is the same. Carney's clansmen, through one way or another, uh, would be reborn as rats. And the rats that live in the Karnimata temple, known as Kabas, are believed to be incarnations of Karnimata's clan. They're treated with great reverence and respect, and they're worshipped because they're believed to be reincarnated people. This includes the handful of white rats who live in the temple, who are believed to be the incarnations of Karnimata herself and her immediate family. And sometimes uh, you'll hear the rats described as reincarnated storytellers. And this goes back to Carney being one of the Sharans who are known for being storytellers and bards, as we mentioned earlier. The rats in the temple are cared for today by descendants of Karnimata's tribe and her devotees. Uh, and there are lots of rules and traditions around these rats. Yeah. And if a visitor kills a rat, he or she has to replace it with a golden rat statue. It's considered to be extremely auspicious if you see one of the white rats or if a rat scampers over your feet while you're there. Your feet will be bare if this happens uh, because visitors are required to take their shoes off before entering the temple. And there's no real distinction between the rat areas of the temple and the people areas. Uh, Rats and people live and eat together. And it's also considered to be extremely auspicious to eat or drink after a rat. I suspect that makes some of our listeners cringe a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's one of the many reasons why so much of the writing about this temple in the West is sort of focused on, ooh, rats, how freaky. (laughs) But that's really not the tone in the temple at all. It's a place where newlyweds often go after their ceremonies to be blessed. Uh, Sometimes grooms-to-be will go to be blessed before the marriage actually takes place. And this may tie into a number of fertility miracles that are attributed to Karnimata during her life. So the rats have a huge temple. It's full of tunnels and little hidey holes that would be perfect for rats. And they get a really um, lovely diet. They get milk. They get a sweet food called prasad. They get coconut and other delicacies. They're sheltered and protected from predators. Uh, Tracy mentioned that netting that keeps predators away up at the top. And so they're living a, a pretty privileged life, particularly yeah. for a rodent. They are really pampered and and people try to look after them. Uh, so I think while uh, many listeners may kind of go reincarnated as a rat does not sound like a good deal, but these particular rats uh, are you know, pretty, pretty well cared for. Yeah. The health aspects of this whole practice are a little bit up for debate. Um, there are visitor reports from people who have gone to the temple who uh, say that some of the rats that you see out and about during the daytime are obviously old and sick and presumably have been pushed out of the nests and tunnels by the healthier rats. There are also reports that no one has ever seen a baby rat in the temple, although in photographs you can see juvenile rats. And logically, we know babies would probably be tucked away in a nest in one of the deeper hidey holes just as a protective measure. I mean, that's... Right, how, how rodents nest. Even if you have seen pet rats who have had babies, usually the babies are tucked away in a little tiny corner. Yep. And they don't they don't get out and run around until they are bigger and have fur. Yeah. 
There are reports from believers that no disease has ever been tied to the temple or its rats. But in the 90s, there was a plague outbreak in India and reports that health officials were having a hard time controlling its spread due to, quote, rat worship. Those are mostly reports from Western newspapers. Uh, Rat worship is not really a Hindu trait. It's particular to this temple and the story behind it. Uh, Typically in India, rats, as in a lot of the rest of the world, fall somewhere on the spectrum between dirty disease carrier and innocuous but also sometimes annoying rodent. And at the same time, I mean, many Hindus are reluctant to harm living things. So that would make it preferable to relocate a pest rather than kill it. Uh, Also, this is not the only place where rats appear in the Hindu religion. Uh, We talked a little bit earlier about how there are carvings of the god Ganesh in this temple. And he is a Hindu god most recognizable because he has an elephant's head. And he's often depicted as riding a mouse or a rat or with a rodent at his feet. But it's important to remember that the rats in this temple are not being worshipped because they're rats. They're being worshipped because they are people, and specifically this mystic's people. Right. That is the whole story of Karnimata and the rat temple. If if you see pictures, the rats are all, they're all brown rats. They all are, they look a lot alike. They're all about the same size. Uh, and you'll you'll see lots of pictures of them running around and drinking milk and being fed delicious food. Are there any photographs of any of the white rats that you found? I found really kind of grainy, blurry ones <laughs> that tourists had <laughs> taken. Um, we have made an image gallery on the website of lots and lots of pictures uh, of the temple and the rats in it. And I don't think there are any white rats in those pictures that were taken by professionals. There are only reported to be a handful of them, really about five. Yeah. Um, while the reported number of rats in the rest of the temple is 20,000. So I just wonder, since it's so auspicious to see one, how rare it is for people to get an eyeball on them. Yeah. The people that are the caretakers of this this temple and the rats in it, they know where they are likely to hang out Mm -hmm. um, because as many animals, they all sort of have their own little corner and territory that they like the most. And so if the, if the caretakers know where they are, they can usually point people in the right direction, but still, since there are so many more brown rats than white ones, the odds are not in your favor. Not really. Uh, It is much more likely that rats will run over your feet since they are around humans so much. They don't have fear. They're not really afraid. Mm. And even, you know, I used to have a pet rat a very long time ago. And tame rats are not really scared of people. No, just like any tame animal. Yeah, they don't mind being held and picked up and all of that. So that is the story. As I was getting into research, I was uh, afraid I was not going to be able to find enough information written in English that was not, whoa, rats. Because <laughs> so much of it is really Just the rats. shock that yeah. there's a, a, a huge rat colony that's cared for. Right. And a lot of, uh, you know, misunderstanding about what that is all about. Yeah. So, yes. I also have some listener mail. Please share it. I have a couple more letters about uh, our Loving versus Virginia episode again. Because we talked about that for two episodes and we got a whole lot of mail. We did, indeed. A whole lot of really interesting mail. This first one is from Alexandra, who says, Dear Tracy and Holly, your recent podcast on the Loving versus Virginia case inspired me to dig a little into the anti-miscegenation laws in my home state of California. 
Interracial marriage was banned until 1948 here, but there was a brief conundrum for Filipino and white marriages from 1930 to 1933. Since it was unclear in the anti-miscegenation law whether Filipino people could be categorized as part of, quote, the Mongolian race, which was prohibited from intermarrying with white people, a small number of interracial couples received court mandates to issue legal marriage licenses. After Filipinos were ruled by the court to be part of the, quote, melee race, the legislation that outlawed interracial marriage was amended to include, quote, melee persons like Filipino. This topic holds a soft spot in my heart because I've come from a Filipino-American family that seems to have dodged this anti-miscegenation bullet by only one generation. My grandparents married in the Philippines in 1948 and promptly moved to the United States. My mother and all but one of her siblings have married Caucasian people my father included. I myself am married to a wonderful man who has colonial Scots-Irish ancestry and is just about as, quote, white as they come. And it just breaks my heart to think that a couple like us only 70 years ago would have been unable to spend their lives together just because lawmakers wanted to preserve a, quote, pure white race. Thank you very much for that. Oh, Holly is making this. The, the, not a not a sad face. It's no, a teary face these, um, all, this whole thing gets me very choked up. I know we we had to compose ourselves several times while yeah. recording. Because <laughs> when there are chunks of the podcast where only Tracy talks, it's because I was crying too much. <laughs> it's okay though. That yeah, that was definitely material that that nice. was close to both of our hearts. So um, thank you very much for providing that perspective. Really, a lot of what what we were covering just because of what was being discussed at the time was about African-Americans and white Americans. And so hearing how that also uh, related to people of other cultures and races, I really... Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, We also got a message from Tom who says, I've been enjoying the latest two episodes on Loving versus Virginia. I grew up in central Virginia where Loving is a common last name and was completely unaware of the Lovings until the last 10 years or so. You made a reference to Caucasians being able to marry Native Americans with no more than one sixteenth Native American blood at the time of the court case. This goes back to Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924. The one sixteenth provision was put in place to appease the descendants of Pocahontas and John Rolfe, who otherwise would have been listed as colored under the provisions of the act. A lot of the racial purity work in Virginia was by Walter Ashby Plecker, who, along with the Racial Integrity Act, the Sterilization Act, and the eugenics movement, may make a good subject for a future podcast. The effects of the racial purity law are still being felt today. Native American tribes in Virginia have been unable to obtain federal recognition because in order to do so, tribe members need to be able to trace the tribal lineage. Since Native Americans were classified in Virginia as colored or even Negro, they have been unable to trace continuous lineage. Uh, and then he sent us some helpful links on this subject. So I had two thoughts uh, from this letter. The first is that the uh, the Pocahontas exception had come up in the research mm-hmm. of, um, of the episode. And it was one of those things that I wanted to confirm before we talked about it in the episode. And then I got derailed in all of the other material in yeah. the episode. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Um, the other is that uh, I I was intrigued by this idea of Native American tribes in Virginia being unable to trace their lineage because of being classified as colored or Negro. Yeah. I have an aunt who has a long Native American history and is also extremely interested in the family genealogy. And she has talked about 
being able, being unable to trace her own ancestry beyond a certain point, not because they were classified as a particular race, but because the the government and the areas where she is from uh, just basically stopped keeping up with Native American birth and death records. Right. And so uh, if the tribal records no longer exist, there's definitely not anything. There's a big gap. There's a huge gap. Yeah. Um, so I didn't. I did not realize that there were other reasons as well that uh, Native American people and people with uh, various ancestry would not be able to trace their lineage back. Yeah. So thank you very much for that note, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a cool insight into what must be an incredibly frustrating situation yes. to tra- be trying to track things down that you just can't because they got kind of they, yes. rubber stamped in a kind of inappropriate way or not rubber stamped at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> in either case. Uh, is a just unfortunate aspect of American history. If you would like to write to us about this or any other topic, you may at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff. You can find us on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest too. We have made an image gallery full of images of this temple and some of the other uh, Indian culture related to it. And you can go to our website, type in the word Rat Temple, and you will find that and a whole lot more at our site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.